So last week marked the release of my latest book, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty. And in the days since, I've been doing one promotional interview after another, after another, after another, approximately 130 in all. And while it is a bit exhausting, only a douchebag would actually complain because it's people taking an interest in something you busted your ass on. That being said, here's one thing I've noticed. Of all the people I've spoken with, the ones asking the best questions are, with rare exception, the ones I've never heard of, from tiny blogs to obscure podcasts to university newspapers. It's a student journalist from UConn, the interviewer from Walla Walla, the host at NYU Radio. And I think truly, what it comes down to is curiosity. These people are 20, 21, 22. They're young and they're hungry and they're yet to be infected with cliche-itis. So remember, just because you're inexperienced and green doesn't mean you can't make an impression. It doesn't mean you can't be great. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Danielle Lerner, former athletic Louisville beat writer, who was recently hired to cover the University of Memphis basketball program at the Daily Memphis. This is episode number 175. Let's sing some yeah. Dad, well, Danielle, thank you for doing this. I feel like uh, these the, this podcast takes a lot of different forms and a lot of shapes, and I was thinking like, area I've never gone is starting new journalism job during a pandemic and what that even means. And you, so you basically, you were at the, you were at the Courier Journal for more than three years. Then you jump to the athletic and of course I'm sure you're thrilled and this is great. I'm at the athletic. Holy shit. This is awesome. Blah, blah, blah. Covering Louisville. And then uh, earlier this year, the athletic just kind of has massive layoffs and you're one of them. And all of a sudden you're like, shit, I don't have a job. How does it go from there? I mean, yeah, definitely it was, it was not something that I saw coming or that I think anyone who was impacted by these layoffs, you know, there were 46 of us, um, saw it coming. So it was a shock to deal with for sure, but it was also not even my first experience, you know, dealing with losing a, a journalism job. So it's shocking in general. And then it's shocking when you think about the state of the world right now and the state of sports and trying to get another job within sports. But, you know, uh, I've got very, very fortunate in that, you know, every opportunity I've ever had uh, in this industry, whether I ended up taking it or not, has come through networking for me, from people that I know and people that they know. And so only, I think it was the same day or the day after I got laid off, I got a call from the editor here uh, at the Daily Memphian who used to be within Gannett when I was at the Courier Journal. So, you know, we used to be in the same company, even though we didn't know each other, but he's good friends with a former editor of mine and had heard about it and conversations started from there and it just kind of snowballed. And within 10 days, you know, I, I had another job. So I know it's not that easy for, for everyone and very, very aware of how lucky I was to be able to find something so quickly. Did you have an inkling that your athletic job might be in trouble? No, not at all. Um, I mean, we knew that they were very transparent with us in terms of metrics and, and how things were going. And obviously things are difficult when most sports were on pause. Um, so, you know, we knew, you know, from that, that perspective, like that things weren't 
you know, all hunky-dory, but it certainly was not doom and gloom or anything like that. There was, you know, never a time where they said, oh, we think that, you know, we might have to lay people off or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I had, I had no idea. So how did you actually find out? Um, they emailed uh, us that, that morning and said that there was, like, a staff-wide meeting at noon, which – we have regular company meetings um, every two weeks on Thursdays, and this was on a Friday, and we had just had our meeting the week before, so it was definitely, it was not scheduled, it was out of the ordinary, and uh, I just immediately had this sinking feeling because I knew from previous stops, just whenever you have emergency company-wide meetings, it's never a good, a good thing, uh, and they told us at the meeting that there were going to be layoffs, and they said, if you're going to be impacted, you'll receive an email within the next 20, 30 minutes, and I got my email. I'm not being critical. I'm just actually interested. Did you get a personal call from an editor or someone to say, look, this sucks, blah, 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 blah. Um, I called my editors right after because they had no idea. My direct editors oh, wow. had no clue. So uh, it wasn't that they, they didn't care. It was that they didn't know until I knew. Right. And right. then, yeah, after that, it was just, you know, a, a Zoom call with like an HR person to talk through some details and, and things like that. And, you know, they handle it very, very well. You know, I can't, it sounds weird to say like, oh, this was, you know, a really nice way to lay people off, but I didn't feel like I was, you know, being slighted or anything, even though it was not the most personal touch. Here you sit and you're in your twenties and you're still a relatively new journalist, you know, professionally speaking. When you get that kind of news, I know, you know, they talk about the stages of grief um, when you go through something. Did you have stages, you had, did you have an initial shock, then I'm angry, then I'm this, and then I'm this, okay, now I need to look for a job. Like, how did you process it and sort of go about transitioning to where you Yeah, I think how you described it is, is pretty much what it was. It was very much shock. I was, had been working all morning on another story that I was really, really excited about, and had had calls scheduled for later that afternoon for that story. And I just kind of immediately first texted those people and said, Hey, I'm sorry, you know, something has come up uh, personally and then I can't, you know, talk to you this afternoon and I'll let you know about rescheduling potentially. And, you know, ended up telling those people, I think the next day, like what had happened um, or later that afternoon, but just kind of put that on hold and, you know, called my parents and uh, called my best friend and, cried a little bit and then kind of just took the day to, to process. And I think um, immediately after that, by the next day, I was on like, you know, going into overdrive, got to, you know, start calling people, got to start looking for, you know, freelance opportunities in the meantime, got to figure out if I'm going to stay in Louisville because my lease is up in two months, um, you know, kind of figure out what to do. If I'm going to go home to California and stay with my parents um, while I look for a job. So it was very much, I'm a type of person who always is thinking next steps. And I think I just defaulted to that and got lucky that that next step came along quite quickly. Like when you do this job long enough or you've been around long enough, you end up speaking to a lot of colleges, right? Like I've definitely spoken to my fair share of colleges. And 20 years ago when I was new in the business and you talk to a college, oh yeah, you should go into journalism. Journalism is awesome. It's the best job ever, blah, blah, blah. And 10 years ago, yeah, no, journalism's great. You'll enjoy it. It's hard, but it's, you know, it's great. Well, five years ago, look, it's hard. It's getting harder. There's no doubt about it. You're a 2016 grad. You've gone through the ringer of what it is to be a young journalist. 
in this era, is it worth it? I see I'm biased. I just, I think it is still because I just can't imagine doing anything else. I have wanted to be in journalism since I was 10 years old. Seriously. I just never thought about anything else or I knew, I guess, writing of some sort since I was 10 years old. And, you know, I have also, you know, talked to college classes within the last couple of years and stuff. And it's kids who are not that much younger than I am. And they ask their they ask, you know, what should they be doing to get into the field and, and things like that. And I always feel, hey, I'm not quite qualified to be speaking to that yet because I don't have that much experience. Um, but also, I tell them, you know, it's kind of different for everyone. And when I was in journalism school uh, at the University of Missouri, our professors pretty much scared the shit out of us. And we're like, you're not going to find any jobs. Your first job is going to be in the middle of nowhere. You're going to get paid $20,000 a year. Like, be prepared for the grind. So they kind of overly prepared us for it being super, super rough. And I think that, you know, I've been pleasantly surprised that, you know, if you put your head down and you really work, like you'll find a place. It's not going to be, you know, always landing at, at somewhere like the athletic within your first five years out of school. Like I feel very, very fortunate to have been in that position. But if you have a clear vision for what kind of work you want to do, it doesn't really matter who you do it for. You just have to know that that's going to be fulfilling enough for you personally to just be doing the work, not, you know, doing it for this audience or that audience. All right. So you're going to like this. I had a, uh, my wife and I had a long talk last night about millennials and it makes me sound like old codger, I admit, but I, I got to say, I, I, I do know a lot of millennials who seem to have expectations and very thin skinned and unwilling to take criticism. And I just want to write a book and you're 21, you know, or I, I should be writing for the New York times. I'm better than that guy. And I mean, you're right there. Like, am I just being an old codger or is there something like you actually strike me in many ways as sort of rare. You, you sound exactly how I sound and how others sounded back in 1990, whatever, where it's like, look, you got to bust your ass. You got to move anywhere, blah, blah, blah. Am I oversimplifying this or is there something generational that's a little off? I don't know. I mean, I think uh, a lot of my friends who who I went to school with and stuff, you know, a lot of them are extremely talented. They're way more talented than I, I am. And they are at some of those big places. And I think that they deserve to be there. Um, but I also think that there are always going to be people who are a little too big for their britches and, and too cocky and too confident. And that's, I think that rubs people the wrong way when you're trying to get into this business. I think you have to find that balance between being confident in your own talent um, but also, you know, being humble and being willing, willing to do all the dirty work. Um, and that's something that I've always been willing to do. And um, sometimes I have to remind myself kind of to know my worth. And, you know, I think that's gotten easier as I've gotten farther into the business. Now I have kind of, you know, some experiences to, to back that up for myself. But when I was just starting, like, I did not feel like I necessarily deserved to, to be doing some of the things that I was doing. And I think that's kind of like that imposter syndrome that a lot of people my age do feel, but maybe they don't want to outwardly project that. Does Missouri journalism come with its fair share of cocky or is that just perception? Uh, no, I think it does. I think it does. Uh, when I was there, you know, it's a very competitive environment. People very much, you know, oh, I have this internship this summer and blah, blah, blah. And what do you have? But I think that that helps 
you know, it helps you in the long run to be in that type of environment. But I can see you were from the outside, like, I never felt like I was like that. But then once I got into the professional world, I'd say, oh, I went to Mizzou. And people who didn't go there would be like, oh, you're another, you're one of those Mizzou people. Like, you're going to be a cocky asshole. And I was looking around like, me? Right. No, no way. So I don't think it applies to everyone, but I certainly, you know, it has a reputation for, for a reason. One of the secrets that people don't realize when they're in college, because I was a cocky little asshole and I didn't go to Missouri. And one of the secrets that you realize as you get older in the business is nobody responds positively to cocky. You can be kind of confident and you can be self-assured to a certain degree. Nobody likes cocky, right? Have you ever met anyone who's like, oh, that guy's awesome. He's so cocky. No. Yeah. It just doesn't exist. You are now covering Memphis basketball for the Daily Memphian, which is a, um, an online publication based out of Memphis. You're the first person I've talked to about this kind of thing. You start on a beat during a pandemic. It's an unfamiliar beat to you. You've never covered Memphis hoops before. What do you even do? Like, how do you even start doing that? Yeah, that's something that I'm still kind of figuring out. I, I literally have not even been on the job a week. I really wanted to, I had two months off between when I got hired and when I started here. And there was temptation to immediately start doing all my homework and, you know, watching film and reaching out to people. And I, I kind of had some, some friends in the biz advise me, like, give yourself this time off. Um, you know, you don't need to start right away. You're not being paid to be on the beat right away. So do your basic homework, but don't feel like you need to automatically start making introductions and doing things of that nature. So I kind of left it all until I got into town, even though I'm not going out and seeing people, um, started making the rounds via phone, talked to everyone on, on their staff, tried to talk to kind of other peripheral figures around the program, um, relying a lot on my coworkers at the Daily Memphian who, you know, have been here and have been around this program and some of whom covered it before I did. So it's really just coming in with the attitude that I'm not going to be an expert on Memphis basketball now or really probably anytime soon, anytime in the next few months. And, you know, I'm willing to do my homework. I'm willing to learn. And, you know, I'm also willing to take your story ideas. I just want to write things that other people aren't writing. And I'm admitting that I'm going to need your help to do that. So do you try reaching out to Penny Hardaway? Uh, I did. He is notoriously a little bit elusive um, with, you know, any media really, but especially local media. And so I actually haven't talked to him. I tried to go, you know, through the SID, managed to talk to everyone else on his staff, except for him, essentially. Right. So I don't know if I'll ever get the, the one-on-one intro. They had said they're going to try and make that happen. I'm still going to try push for it. But again, it's super early. Um, but he, I think he's actually supposed to have a, a press conference tomorrow morning. So It'll be weird kind of being on this Zoom presser when I haven't met the guy yet, I'm like trying to ask him some questions uh, in front of a bunch of other reporters who I haven't met yet. But, you know, that's the way it goes. Wait, so when you're calling, like you call the sports information department, then you call the different assistant coaches. Is it just to let them know you exist? I mean, what is the, what is sort of the, what are you saying to them when you call them? Yeah, it's kind of, hey, this is me. This is, you know, who I am, a little bit of backstory of what I'm about. These are the types of stories that I try to write about programs that I cover. But also just after that, it's kind of just shooting the shit, getting to know them. You know, these are all pretty informal. They weren't officially off the record conversations, but I told them like, this isn't really, it's not an interview. It's a get to know you 
conversation. And that's how it went. And, and a couple of them, you know, they said something that I was like, hey, that's interesting. You know, I would love to write a story about that at some point. You know, can I call you back in a, in a few days maybe? Um, and we can expand on that officially. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah. So, you know, I just, I don't want to make it like the first time I talk to someone is me hunting around for information that I'm immediately going to publish. Right. Um, I don't think that's a good way to start a relationship. And they know that eventually, yeah, I will need to use them for, you know, sources and actual stories, whether that's on the record or not. But for right now, I think relationship building is just, you know, talking about what's going on with the pandemic. What are you up to right now? What are you dealing with in your life? Doesn't matter if Penny knows who you are. No, I don't think so. I think that, you know, ideally, yeah, we would develop a relationship, but he's just not the type of coach who does that with reporters. And to me, you know, there are plenty of other people to do that with around the program. So I'm not intimidated by having to work around that. Everyone else here covering the team has had to work around that. And, you know, I'm sure with time it'll come. So you, you've covered Louisville, you covered Louisville men's basketball for the Courier Journal. You covered Louisville basketball for the athletic. I've never, ever been a college sports beat writer of any type. I've just swooped in and swooped out, but I've never covered a sport. Professionally, in pro leagues nowadays, it's definitely harder and harder and harder to get access to athletes. You know, in the old days, if you wanted Shaq, you walk up to Shaq's locker and you talk to Shaq. Now that's, if you want to get LeBron, that's really not happening unless it's a question, a quick question. With college sports and college basketball in particular, what is it like these days? You know, obviously I, I can't speak to the old days. You know, my old days is like four years ago. But uh, I think that it is getting harder. I think especially at kind of the big Power 5 programs like Louisville and, and even, you know, Memphis is not Power 5, but they're really going up in notoriety um, in the Penny era. I think that it is tough because these teams in a lot of ways can control their own narrative, either through in-house um, marketing and things like that, or you have kind of the fan bloggers who cover, and I'm using air quotes right now, who cover the teams, but, you know, they have other day jobs, which is fine, but, you know, they don't try to be objective in any sort of way. They're, you know, basically an extension of the, the program. And so programs recognize those people now and are able to use them as outlets for only positive news. It's also a coach-by-coach basis as well. So, for example, Rick Pitino at Louisville always had an open locker room policy. Um, so after games, if you want to skip the presser and go into the locker room and, you know, get the guy who, you know, maybe didn't score 25 points but, you know, need him for another feature or something like that or you want his perspective on something he saw from the bench, you could go do that. Um, when Chris Mack arrived, he tried that out for a couple games and decided, no, I don't like the open locker room concept. I think it's a distraction. I think it just – you know, makes our guys um, less focused on the basketball aspect because they feel like then they're going to be, you know, under siege after the game. Right. So that was his decision to close that, which, you know, we all weren't super happy about, but for the most part said, okay, it just forces us to be a little bit more creative. And I think that actually did help because it forced me to establish better relationships with players in, in other ways. And by, you know, doing more meaningful stories, Um, But it's harder when you can't see people face to face all the time and just kind of joke around with them and your only access is specifically kind of when you ask for it. Um, And that's, I think, the struggle that everyone is going to have during this pandemic where you can no longer just go and hang around to practice or hang around at an event and chat people up. Um, You know, it's all through Zoom pressers and things like that now. Are you assuming there will be a college basketball season? 
I'm not assuming anything at this point. I'm hoping that there will be one. Um, I'm assuming that if there is one, it is going to have to be in a regional bubble-like situation, and it's not going to start before January. I mean, if nothing else, you're you're covering sports in the weirdest time in modern history. I know. All my friends were like, we don't understand. Like, you're going to take a job covering sports in a new city when there's no sports? I'm like, yep, see you later. Like, do you even need to be there? See, that's the interesting thing. I have a friend who's covering a team right now and covering it from 2,000 miles away. Do you need to be in Memphis? Technically, no, not at this moment. Um, but, you know, I, I optimistically am thinking that at some point they're going to have, you know, start having something. And maybe if there are any games, assuming that they allow media, which is another question, you know, who they're going to grant access to. You know, I think it would just serve me better to be here. I think it's better to be here, be on the same time zone, you know, kind of understand what people are talking about if they're talking about the framework of a city, you know, find other stories that have to do with maybe fans or local high school teams. A lot of the players on the roster are from Memphis. Um, You know, Penny and a bunch of his coaches are from here. I think it just helps to get to know the city for my storytelling. And it didn't really make sense to me to – try and go live somewhere else, whether it was staying in Louisville or going back to California for just a few months, if I was going to eventually have to move here anyway. So how do you get to know, I, this is a very general question, but how do you get to know a city during a pandemic? Um, I've been doing a lot of eating out. Well, I should say takeout. I have not gone to dine in at, at restaurants. That's not something that I'm doing. Um, so a lot of delivery and takeout. Uh, I love eating my way through a city in Memphis is a really, really great food city. Um, so I've been very well fed. And then lots of just walks and, and exploring outside, really trying to walk in a different neighborhood um, every other day, um, you know, go do my workouts at a, at a local park or something like that. I know a couple people here. Um, right now I'm still in self-quarantine, you know, since getting back from California. So I am not seeing anyone. But um, once I think I'm in the clear, I'll start, you know, maybe seeing people outside um, at a distance, some colleagues, and, and I have some friends from college who are in the journalism scene here as well. Um, so hopefully, you know, just getting people who've been here longer to show me the ropes. So I have a book coming out, and one of the guys I interviewed, there was a, a former Laker backup center named Travis Knight, and Travis Knight played for Rick Pitino in Boston. And I was like, what was Pitino like? He's like, he's the biggest asshole coach I've ever played for. I hated him. I hated everything about him. And I was so happy to not be there anymore. And I'm actually from New Rochelle, New York, and Patino is now the head coach of Iona basketball. And Patino kind of fascinates me. He really does. I was in New York when he was a young coach and young NBA coach, and he was terrific. What was he like to cover? He can be such a great quote. He, you know, is pretty much a, a narcissist by nature. And so he just likes to talk about himself and he likes to talk. So there were times where you could call him up to ask him something and he would talk for 20 minutes on an unrelated tangent, but it would be not anything that you needed per se, but it would be interesting. Um, And, you know, obviously he is a very big personality coach and those types of figures are always fun to cover. I didn't quite cover the basketball aspect of his tenure there because at the time I was not our basketball beat writer at the Courier Journal. I was in a sports enterprise role for a long time or like a a sports GA before that. And so I would kind of hop in and out of different teams and help cover them. And a lot of the stuff I ended up writing 
related to Patino was I was kind of our go-to for covering all of the legal troubles with the FBI investigation, the NCAA investigations, all of that. So when I talked to him a lot of the times, it wasn't about basketball. It was about those things that obviously he didn't want to be talking about. Um, So our relationship in that way, I think, at times was a little bit fraught. So I didn't have too much experience with him on a day-to-day basis outside of all of that, which was in itself a beast to cover. But he definitely, you know, can go off. He, He has a temper, but he also doesn't, he doesn't want to be that person who says no to a, an interview or a phone call or a text. So it was easy to kind of get a hold of him and ne- he wouldn't necessarily end up talking about what you wanted to talk about because he had a way of kind of snaking around questions in conversation. But um, we'll just say that I'm glad that I don't have to kind of keep up with the ups and downs of his career anymore because it was exhausting sometimes just right. to cover what he was doing both on and off the court. Are you one of these people who is always comfortable making awkward and tough phone calls? Or are you one of these people who sits by the phone and takes deep breaths for five minutes before making the calls? It varies each time. I wouldn't say I'm like super comfortable about it. I think I get more nervous sometimes with the more, I guess, mundane interviews. Like if it's like just for a big takeout, you know, that's not necessarily like something hard hitting or investigative. If it's something that's easier to pin down. I'm like, well, I have to call and ask about this lawsuit or I have to call and ask about these allegations against someone like that to me is more cut and dry as to, you know, how I want the conversation to go, what I need them to address. But I get more nervous when, you know, I'm just trying to do a feature on, on someone and, you know, I really want to get them to trust me and open up to me. And those are the things that I think, you know, give me more anxiety. You want to get someone to open up to you. Uh, you're doing a profile on someone. Do you have little devices, little tools, little things you do to sort of make that happen in the best way possible? Yeah, I think um, explaining the story that you want to do before you start is really important. What do you mean? Um, like, you know, not necessarily explaining an angle because I don't think you should ever come into an interview with a preconceived idea of how you want to write the story but just explaining why you feel it's important to do the story, you know, for, and I've written about, you know, really tough subjects like players losing people close to them. Um, And when you want to write about something like that, whether you're close to a player or not, that's something that's difficult to talk about. And they have no incentive to talk to you about that. And so you have to kind of give them an incentive and say, look, I think it's really interesting because you know, people handle grief in different ways. And I want to know how this has kind of informed your perspective on just life as a whole going forward. I think that people would find it really interesting to hear how you handled that. And then sometimes they go, oh, okay, you know, you're not just looking for, you know, some huge clickbait piece, and you're not, you know, trying to turn it into something that it's not, you know, you just want to hear what my experience is. And that's how I try to approach it, just being as honest as possible and saying, hey, you know, tell me as much as you're comfortable with. And I always also, if it's a tough subject, say, if I ask a question and you just feel like you can't answer it, or like it's too emotional for you or you need to stop at any time and pause, like you can. I'm not going to sit here and force you to talk to me about something that you're really uncomfortable with. So it's just being a human first. The funny thing is, though, meanwhile, you actually do want them to talk to you about something they're uncomfortable with. Yeah, so it's sometimes a little bit of reverse psychology, right? But I think you have to show that, you know, I think a lot of people, especially younger athletes, 
you grow up with the media and they see it primarily in television form and it's just rapid fire, question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. And it's not really like a free flowing conversation, which I think is how most of us would prefer our interviews to go. Right. And so by kind of telling them, look, I am going to publish what, what is said between us, but like, really, I, I'm not trying to, I guess, take over this conversation. I am here to listen to you. And yes, I'm going to steer the conversation at times and, you know, I'm going to follow up with you on things, but I make it clear. I'm not coming in with a list of questions that I'm trying to go down and speed through. And I think a lot of people don't really understand that interviews are, are like that. Before we continue with Two Riders Sling and Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Casey Perlman, and I'm here with my dad, Jim, who just appointed himself as team dad in my high school water polo team. It's Jeff. Whatever. So what are your plans as team dad? Well, first, I want everyone to give their all and commit 100% to water polo power. That's stupid. Second, I wrote a cheer to be said before every game. It goes, swim, swim, get that bucket, score that goal, and scream off. Dad, dad, what's number three? Oh, right. You guys need new uniforms, so I think you and your teammates should go to 503-sports.com, kings of the throwback sports merchandise, and decide whether you'd be the Oklahoma Outlaws or the San Antonio Gunslingers. But we're a high school water polo team. Honestly, is anyone paying attention? Have you had a, Have you had your go-fuck-yourself moment from an athlete yet? Not from an athlete. I get it, I get it more, um, you know, coaches, administrators, things like, like that. A, give us one. What do, you, what do you got? Oh, man. Well, this is from, I guess... Not really an administrator. So I did a piece of the athletic director at Louisville um, before this one, um, Tom Jurich. You know, he was kind of responsible for building the university athletics into what it is today across all programs, but, you know, was kind of synonymous with that era of like Patino Jurich. That was a big thing. And they both ended up getting fired in the wake of the FBI scandal in September, like fall 2017. Um, before that though, I was already looking into Tom Jurich's son, Mark was on staff in the athletic department, um, as kind of like a, a fundraising liaison, but his title was essentially like an associate AD. Um, it was very unclear what his job was. It was unclear who he reported to. There was, you know, already nepotism within the football program with Bobby Petrino, um, and his son on the staff and his son-in-law on the staff. So our football writer was looking into that. I, at the time, was in a sports enterprise position and was looking into uh, Jurich and his son. Ended up finding out and publishing this huge investigation about how he got, you know, 10 raises over the last decade or so that, and promotions that were not really traced to anything. Um, no one could answer who he reported to, so he essentially reported to his father. There was very little oversight. Just a whole problematic situation was writing about this and would obviously and Tom at this point had already been fired but Mark had not um so it was kind of retroactive and I was you know talking to the family spokesman um to take stuff to both Mark and Tom to clarify so I wasn't allowed to talk to either of them directly I was going through this spokesman um his name was Bob Gunnell and he would just go off at me for, you know, I send him a list of questions and say, you know, according to this document, I found this, da, 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 da. 
do you have an explanation? Does Mark have an explanation for this? Can you clarify to me, you know, who authorized this promotion or this raise, whatever it was. And he would always just call me and, you know, unleash a tirade essentially. And I would say, okay, but like, did you send my questions to Mark? Can you like get me responses? And just didn't care. And then it was funny because the story actually came out and he had been giving me hell the entire time throughout the reporting process, which was like four months or so. And then the story comes out and he calls me immediately afterwards and I'm thinking, oh gosh. And I pick up and he goes, uh, this was actually pretty well reported. I was like, oh, thank you. Awesome. <laughs> Sometimes people give you shit just to give you shit, I think. When he's yelling at you and barking at you and kind of snarling at you, do you, do you snarl back or do you just kind of listen and take it and ignore it? No, I think you, sometimes you'd have to kind of listen, let them, you know, get their rage out and then just say, okay, I hear you, but like that doesn't change what I'm doing right now. Right. And, that, you know, thanks for letting me know your feelings. Feel free to keep calling and yelling at me if you want, but I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. So I'm letting you know, like, this is what I'm pursuing. Right. So I got to say, I think one of my things about, um, about college sports, it just feels slimy to me. Like a lot of college sports feels really slimy to me. Like I, when they say student athletes, I, I laugh because my take generally is your college program, oftentimes you go into these inner city schools with underfunded kids, underfunded schools, dilapidated books, dilapidated buildings. You pluck this kid out because he's a great basketball player and maybe he's barely passing or you put him in some blank academy for a year to get his grades up. You bring him to your campus. It's this beautiful, pristine campus. You give him a scholarship, a quote scholarship. He becomes, quote, a student athlete. Um, he's, done, he's, he's a barely you know, functioning student at a shitty school who has never been given the support he needs. And all of a sudden, he's traveling and going to classes. It just all strikes me as kind of a farce. Tell me why I'm wrong. I mean, I think in some cases, it is exactly what you described. In a lot of cases, probably more than we want. You know, I, in an ideal world, you know, college athletics is a way for these kids to, you know, get an education maybe realize their dream of playing a sport that they love at a higher level even if that's not going to extend beyond college into a professional career and I think we hold sports up as you know this beacon not just of entertainment but of camaraderie and you you learn and you grow within it and a lot of the times that does happen but it's at the expense like you said of a lot of other things of not getting compensated for all the money that you're bringing in for these programs. And I'm of the opinion that college athletes should be paid. I don't have a perfect model for how that would be accomplished, but I think that they should be. And it does feel weird sometimes, especially covering, you know, all of these quote, quote unquote, recruiting scandals um, and things like that, where kids are getting compensated which is against NCAA bylaws, but not, I don't think that's anything that a lot of athletes or people who cover the sport would argue against. So it's this weird balance of, you know, I'm kind of part of this ecosystem by covering it and lending credence to this system. And a lot of the times, you know, our job as writers is to critique that system and we do, but 
really when it comes down to it, like, what are we going to do about it? I'm powerless to, to stop this kind of thing from happening. And all I can do is try and inform everyone as to what's happening. And so it's this weird crisis of, you know, I don't feel like I'm necessarily, you know, part of this corrupt system, but in a way I'm just this bystander to it all. You've come along in the social media era. Like you are a, you are a, you know, this is your world and this has been your world as long as you've known journalism uh, as a practitioner. Um, do you hate Twitter? Or do you like Twitter? Oh, I hate Twitter, but I'm addicted to it. I think that's kind of how everyone is. I can't get off of it. I, while we're sitting here, I have 25 Twitter notifications. Um, it's just, it's a beast, but it's the beast that you kind of have to feed, I think, in order to um, exist in this business today. Um, especially as someone who's not established. I think people who are more established already um, and were around before this era can get away with not being super active on Twitter or on other social media. But for us, you know, who's going to know who the hell I am if they can't look me up on, on Twitter and get kind of that easy access to my stories, especially because the daily Memphian is primarily a, a subscription only website. The athletic was the same way. More and more local newspapers now, um, you know, are putting up that paywall. So if you want to be able to reach not just your local audience, but an expanded audience, you kind of need that as a tool. And it's also really useful for me for keeping track of news, right. um, for getting insights into, you know, I get notifications for every single Memphis player and member of their staff anytime they tweet anything, a um, bunch of the recruits um, that they're going after as well. So it's useful for me to kind of keep up with their lives um, and see instantaneously if there's anything newsworthy. I've never asked anyone this. You have a blue check. I have a blue check. Doesn't matter. I don't think so. I mean, like, yes, I was excited when I got it, but it also doesn't actually mean anything. Like my follower count did not jump up after that or anything like that. It's hasn't affected what I tweet or how often I tweet. Um, so I don't think it, it really matters at all. There was someone who started a fake Jeff Perlman account on Twitter. And it was, That's how you know you've made it. Yeah, uh, exactly. And uh, it was Jeff Perlman is a douchebag was the tagline. And I wrote Twitter and I was like, look, this guy isn't me. And they gave me a blue check. I kind of view the blue check in a way as like a black American express card only in that if you want to reach someone via Twitter, like if I'm trying to reach a professional athlete, just as an example, or a coach who's on Twitter, and I write them and I'll be like, they're not following me. And I'll say, hey, can you follow me so I can ask you a quick question? I actually think that blue check matters. Is that dumb? No, and actually, I like, I've definitely, I use that approach as well. I message people on social media all the time, but I also do that on other platforms like Instagram, for example, where, you know, you have, you don't have that. I don't have a check on Instagram. I don't know how you even get that on Instagram or yeah. why we want that. Cause it's generally something I use for personal use, but sometimes that's the best way to get, especially younger um, players to respond to you via Instagram. So I think, yeah, maybe it says to, especially someone you don't know, like, hey, this isn't like a rando on the internet. Um, it's someone who does this professionally. So maybe it helps, but I don't think I can really answer that question. I think it's something they can answer. Do you find that reaching out to players via Instagram is effective via Instagram DM? Yeah, yeah, I think it, it definitely is. And it depends on the program. I think, 
you know, going back to the access that we were talking to uh, talking about earlier, college programs now, when they are talking to their players about how to interact with the media, a lot of times we'll tell them, like, if you get a text or you get contacted, you know, directly, don't talk to a reporter, just shut them down. Just don't say anything. Um, some players are more willing than others to comply with that. But I just am of the mindset that like, it never hurts to try. You know, I'm not trying to be disrespectful necessarily by, you know, go, not going through the school, through the SID. But sometimes I, you know, you just need an answer fast on something or you want to try establish, you know, a more realistic connection with someone. And I just think that you need to reach out to them directly so your message doesn't get lost. You can say, hey, I want to talk to you specifically about this. If you want to, you can hit me back here. Here's my phone number. Here's my email, whatever. Um, and just open that door for them at least. I really feel like sports information departments have, they definitely changed their mission since I started covering sports. They've become, it used to be they were conduits to an athlete. Oh, you want to get, you want to do a profile on so-and-so? Well, why don't you come to the, to the arena on Thursday and we'll get you 20 minutes with so-and-so center? It seems like they've become much more blockades than conduits. Am I, do you disagree with that? No, I, I agree with that. And I think, not only are they blockades, sometimes they straight up, straight up like rip off your stuff. Um, I had that happen a couple of years ago. It was back when I was still, wasn't on the Louisville basketball beat yet. So I was, you know, I would cover all different programs. So I was trying to do a story during the off season on the University of Kentucky football conditioning. Um, I had seen on their social media, I think, or maybe on a player's social media, they were doing some really intense stuff like running through sand pits. I thought it was interesting wanted to know, you know, how they were working on that. And I did go through the SID and, you know, said, can I talk to the strength coach? Can I have an interview? They said, yes. I ended up doing it, the interview. The only time you could do it was on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. I was in Temple and I literally went out and sat in my car in the parking lot during services and did this interview for half an hour. The SID was on the phone listening into the interview. So I told them, okay, I'm, you know, tomorrow when I'm back at work is when I'm, I'm going to write it up and it'll go up tomorrow or the next day. And the next morning they had a story up on coachcal.com, wow. which is their like in-house content arm. I think they've got like four full-time staffers working on it. That was quotes from my interview with the strength coach doing the exact same story that I was going to do. What do you do? I mean, I was pissed and I went and told my editor about it and, you know, kind of messaged the SID and said, what is this? This like really isn't cool. You knew that I was going to do this story. Um, and they kind of just said, oh, well, you know, tough shit. This is like, this is how we work. We have to, you know, have content up on our site. Wait, so they sat in on your interview, like the SID sat in? record of the interview or whatever, and then use the quotes from your interview and their story? Yeah. That is serious bullshit. Yeah, so that's the only time something like that bad has happened, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, other athletic departments are doing things like that. I think they feel like they don't necessarily need reporters anymore. I would argue that what they did in that instance is evidence that they do. Otherwise, they would have just done the interview and themselves. Um, but... It's frustrating, but it's also, I think, something that if you have a good relationship with 
the SID or with, you know, people at that program, you can avoid it. That was a case where I didn't cover University of Kentucky full time. I just, you know, jumped in every now and then. So I didn't have that relationship where they felt like, oh, we can't burn Danielle like that. Is it an expectation now when you are going to interview a college athlete that someone from the uh, sports information department is going to sit in with you? And are you able to say if someone's like, hey, I'm going to jump in and sit in with you, are you are you confident enough at this point in your career to say, no, I'd rather you not? Um, I don't think that's the expectation. Uh, at Louisville, it was a little different because, you know, I was I was covering them for a long time. So I had a good relationship with the staff. And in the beginning, I think – trying to think if in the very, very beginning of my career, if if anyone ever sat in on one-on-ones. I wasn't doing them that often before I was full-time covering the team and in which, at which point I had already been covering the program for two years. So people knew me. Um, I think sometimes they would start sitting in and it depended on the comfort of the athlete. I think if it was like a freshman who maybe like hadn't really done interviews before and like, I didn't know very well. I think sometimes, you know, they would start in the room just to, like, put them at ease and then leave. Right. But generally, if it's, you know, someone who – a player or a coach who they trust to handle themselves and they know they can trust me, it's left to its own devices. Here, um, I haven't asked for an interview with any athletes yet um, because they all just got back in town this week and are, you know, starting um, workouts and things like that. Or Some of them are in quarantine. Um but I think that if I did ask for one and they, the SID tried to sit in, I would, yeah, feel very comfortable respectfully asking no. Because um, it's like having a babysitter, you know. It's for the athlete as well. They're not going to be maybe as forthcoming if they feel like they have their SID, like a, like a parent or a teacher essentially sitting over their shoulder while they talk to a reporter. Um, I have a final question for you. It's an important one. I'm looking over your, uh, your LinkedIn page. College basketball reporter, Daily Memphian, Louisville basketball beat writer, The Athletic, Courier Journal, Good Stuff, sports reporter, Columbia, Missourian, sports content editing intern, Snack Media, University of Missouri grad, 2016, camp counselor, Walden West Outdoor School. I need to know how your experience at, at uh, the Walden West Outdoor School shaped who you are today. Oh, man. I have no idea why that's still on my LinkedIn. That's probably something that I put on there when I I made my LinkedIn in high school, um, and that was, like, the m- most impressive thing I'd ever done. Um, Give us so, a good Walden story. Oh, man. So, Walden West is this summer camp that is up in the Saratoga Hills um, near where I grew up in San Jose, California, and it's kind of your stereotypical uh, Northern California, like, hippie nature camp. I will say my first real kind of public speaking slash performance experience came at Walden West summer camp. Um, because it was a camp that was a day camp from Monday through Friday, but on Thursday night it was optional overnight stay if you wanted to, and everyone would sleep out in this big field um, on tarps and sleeping bags, and they would have a talent show and, like, cookout um, at night, and all the parents were invited to come up, and you, you know, could put your name in the little box with your skill that you wanted to show, and... uh, and I was probably about 12. This was when I was just learning to play the guitar. And I decided that I was going to perform Hotel California on guitar in the talent show. Um, 
and I don't sing at all. So it was literally putting on a track that was essentially just the vocals of Hotel California and then me playing guitar um, quite clumsily along to it. But I think that, you know, I've never been someone who's been shy about public speaking or, you know, talking to new people I didn't know. And it kind of started there. New York Times comes along and they're like, we need, we're looking for someone to cover dodgeball. Do you have any experience with dodgeball? I feel like you're in. Like you got Walden. You're like, Walden. I got Walden. So yeah. yeah. That's true. Dodgeball and uh, knockout are like the two big things. Well, Danielle, I appreciate your time. Love doing this stuff. I hope you were able to escape your apartment soon enough and explore the lovely city of uh, Memphis, Tennessee. No, thank you from a longtime listener. I want to thank today's guest, Danielle Lerner, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Danielle on Twitter at Danielle underscore Lerner and read her work at The Daily Memphian. Also, my new book, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty is available everywhere. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.